So, um, good morning again. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Oh, I guess we'll, we'll eventually get to three, but we're going to mention some other verses along the way. Um, welcome to Lent 2021. I hope you've managed to stay sure-footed on the ice over the past few days. James, uh, our 11-year-old, told me this morning that he went ice skating in the driveway last night. Apparently that, yeah. personally, uh, I've found myself lately Googling pictures of tropical scenes and listening to Caribbean music. I'm ready for heat, sunshine, and the beach, and I will try to re- not to remind myself too hard that that's actually all four or five months away. Uh, anyway, welcome to Lent, uh, a time in the church calendar that, is in, that intentionally begins in the wintry darkness. Uh, but ends with life and hope and, and new creation. Around here at New Hope, we, <clears throat> we like to have our cake and eat it too in regards to church tradition. Honestly, uh, I say with as much humility as I, I can muster, but I say that with as much humility as I, must, I can muster, but, but there are times where we, we lean into church tradition, and there's other times when, when we put church tradition down in, in favor of following God's lead for our specific context. Uh, for example, most of the year we pay little attention to the lectionary, um, but I often find that Advent actually is a, is a, is a time when, when preaching lectionary texts uh, connects us to other churches around the world. Um, similarly, uh, while we won't be in the lectionary for Lent, um, we will mark the season off intentionally, along with Christians around the globe, in, in order to have a, a season of intentional reflection and devotion, uh, all on the road together towards Easter. Lent is a, a yearly pilgrimage uh, to the cross, and then out the other side through Christ's resurrection. And I think that Lent can often, sometimes intentionally, be a healthy or a heavy season, but, but actually, my hope for you this Lent is, is that you wouldn't feel especially heavy during this year, uh, because I think we've all had plenty, heavy, uh, plenty of heaviness recently. Uh, no, I would say that, that my hope for us this Lent is that this would be a season of preparation. Preparation for what? I'm not 100% sure. I stopped predicting the future about a year ago. But, but I do know this. Jesus promised us that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. I have every expectation that he intends to continue working through the local church, and I want to be as prepared as I can be for whatever the next year holds. So to, to begin that preparation, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a, a section of Scripture in the, in the book of Genesis that's often thought of as, often described as prehistory. Historians, theologians, scientists, they've puzzled over the extent to which the details in this story happened the way that they are described, and I think such work has value, and I I certainly wouldn't want to diminish it, Um, but it's really not what I want us to consider right now. Right now, I want us to see in these stories things that are beyond time. This story came from a specific people, a specific culture, and that culture matters quite a bit as we look for it to speak into our lives, but there are deep truths here. 
in these stories that actually transcend time and space. In many ways, these stories have been told and retold countless times over the centuries. In fact, it is my contention that we live these stories out in one way or the other. Directly or indirectly, we live these stories out every day. More on that as we go along. I've talked about the first, I'm talking specifically about the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, uh, which is the, the, the first, uh, Genesis is the first of, the, uh, of five books of Torah. Torah is typically translated law, and we'll, as we'll see today, this, this text actually certainly does dis, uh, contain law, um, but at its fundamental level, the books of Torah are a story, mostly the story of the people of Israel. Although the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which we'll look at in this series, is actually the story of the whole world told through a Hebrew perspective. The first two chapters of Genesis, as you may know, give us an account, or some would say two accounts, of how God created the world. So right off the bat, we see the, uh, we, we, we start this, we see the, the, the telling of stories from multiple perspectives, something that we'll see time and time again throughout the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1 kind of tells the story one way, uh, where we see the, the various days of creation, uh, the creation week, and, and what God created on each day. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, we, we start to see the whole story again from a from a different perspective. The the thing to remember about all of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God creates a good and beautiful, dynamic, life-filled creation. The first verse, Genesis 1-1, tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But our translation might be a bit misleading. It, it, It just means that God created the skies and the land. It's a simple way of saying God created it all. I think it helps to, to see, helps to think of this story from the perspective of someone in the ancient world. I mean, this story is thousands of years old. It's so old. It's an old story if there ever was one. It's so old. How old is it? How old is it? <laughs> it's so old that other that other stories were instructed by it. Other old stories were instructed by it. For an ancient Hebrew, this, this story might have been first told to you around a campfire. I mean, a, a, as a child. Imagine sitting on a rock as a child, warmed by the fire with the expanse of stars above you, and your grandfather looks at you over the flames and says, in the beginning, God created everything. He created the ground on which we live, the dirt from which our food grows. In the beginning, God created the things that we deal with every day, trees and rocks and animals and water and fish, the things that we come in contact with every day. God created it. What's more, He created you and me in His image. You see, you see there's, there's something of God Himself that's in our blood. We don't fully understand that, but, but here's the other thing about this story. There, there are lots of elements which are, which are mysterious, and God created the mystery too. He created the skies, the heavens, the, the things that we don't know much about. All you have to do is look up into the night sky, and you, you see that you understand that there are things going on that we can only dream about. He's given us light and heat from the sun. He's given us rain to feed our crops. 
And that expanse of stars that's above your head, he created all of that too. You see, fundamental to what it, fundamental to what it meant to be a Hebrew was that God was one. God is one. The rest of the world might believe that the gods conspire, sometimes in our favor, but, but most of the time in light of their selfish desires. But we know, we know that God is one. And it's our call to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. We're to love God with everything we are because He is the one true and living God. We love Him holistically in body, mind, spirit, and heart because He is the one. He is the holistic God who holds the whole universe together. It is this God that we follow. He's given us this world and given us a role in it. He's given us dominion over it. Not, not dominance, dominion. God took this man he had created and, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it, to take care of it, to preserve it. Everything the man needed was within his grasp, especially a relationship with his God, with God himself, who was in a holistic relationship with the man. And God told him, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but here's the thing. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Just like the mysterious stars above, the prohibition is also mysterious because we aren't given any more explanation than that if he eats of the tree, he will die. One commentator says, nothing is explained. The story has no interest in the character of the tree. What counts is the fact of the prohibition, the authority of the one who speaks, and the, and the get this, the unqualified expectation of obedience. At this point in the story, the prohibition is given, and it is accepted as so because God said it. And who else in this story are we going to trust other than God? Why should we not eat of the tree? And why is it there in the first place? I am sorry, but those, those, those are answers we don't get. Those are, those are questions we don't have the answer to. We don't get the answers to those questions. We're only told that the consequence of our disobedience is nothing short of death. Remember, there are two kinds of Characters, two types of characters in this story, God and not God. Our call is to trust and obey and know that, that not only will there be consequences to our disobedience, those consequences will hurt us. Did you notice that God didn't say, don't eat of this tree or else I'll kill you? He said, you shall not eat of this tree for in that day, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die death was a consequence, but we should never forget that the pain that comes from our disobedience is what hurts us. Like a parent saying to a three-year-old, don't touch the stove. Now is not the time for a cooking lesson or an explanation of how household appliances work. What you need to know right now is don't touch the stove. If you do, it will hurt you. Sometimes we forget that sin hurts us. The reason why God doesn't want us to sin isn't just because sin is naughty. 
When we think about how the Bible talks about things like sexual immorality um, or envy or greed, the reason why we don't live into those things isn't just because God told us, no, those things hurt us, and God doesn't want his creation to be hurt. One last thing before we move on. The first two chapters of Genesis also tell us that we were made for each other. Specifically, it says that it's, it's not good for man to be alone. In the story, a, a woman is creator, created as a, as a helper for the man. And as we've talked about before, the word helper is actually a word of, of tremendous weight and respect. It's, it's most often used to describe God's own character, especially in the Psalms. The image that we see at the end of Genesis 2 is two people, a man and a woman, complementing each other in marriage as two become one flesh, naked and unashamed. This is important because it does instruct us on the importance of marriage, but, but in a larger sense, it points towards the importance of community. The greater image that, that we're left with at the end of Genesis 2, God and humanity dwelling together as one fellowship. A humanity that loved God and loved each other. That's the unity that was broken when humanity rebelled. So, Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. A few things to note here. Number one, we have to consider the serpent who we are clearly told was a creature. We're told that it was created by God as, as one of many beasts of the field, and that it was crafty, or maybe clever is a better word. Uh, after all, that same word, crafty, um, is, is used repeatedly in the book of Proverbs to describe someone who is wise and prudent. Regardless, this creature now enters the story and puts the woman on the spot. He says, did God actually say you shall, not have eat any tree, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, that, that's not exactly what he said. He had said that they were surely to eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They shouldn't eat of that because if they do, they would die. But, but here's what the woman says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not have eaten the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she, she got some of it right, but, but God never said anything one way or the other about touching the tree, and he specified the exact tree that they were not to eat as the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. So she's already starting to get kind of mixed up in her head. I remember things like this happening to me when I was a kid. You know, I would be told not to drive my bike past a certain street. And then there would always be, you know, some kid, you know this kid, there's always be some kid who, who would try to test those limits. Hey, man, did your mom really tell you not to cross Old Hartford Road? Well, I mean, you know, she said to stay, she said to stay in the neighborhood. Come on, she, she wouldn't care if you crossed right here. It's not a big deal. There's not even a cars around. You know, a bunch of us are playing in that creek over there. It's still in the neighborhood, right? Besides, I'm with you. I'm going to watch you. Suddenly, he's the responsible one, you know. And the next thing you know, you're running through scenarios in your head. You're wondering how much weight was actually put behind the rules in the first place. And, and you're wondering, you know, is there any wiggle room here? You know, the serpent told her, you know, you shall not surely die. And if you know the rest of the story, he was right in a twisted sense. Did you notice he even used a phrase closer to God's original wording? Maybe this begins to give the woman a false sense of security, and then when the woman, the serpent, provides an explanation in verse 5, she's captivated. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you want to be like God? They were already like God. They had been created in his image. And now the serpent had created a situation where God was now not part of the fellowship. Now God was at a distance. He was now a third party. He was an object to be discussed. The serpent had twisted God's words and encouraged the woman to second guess herself. He, he even played on her sense of desire. He, he showed her a pretty shiny thing. And then put it within her grasp. And unlike the fairy tales, this creature doesn't give the fruit to an unsuspecting character. Instead, he manipulates the situation in such a way that she, she does the action completely. She walks over to the tree. She takes of the fruit herself. She bites into it. She even gives some to her husband who was evidently with her the whole time. And he eats it. And then immediately they realize what they've done. It says their eyes were opened, right? The clarity of the situation looks so different on the other end of disobedience. Where seconds before they were convincing themselves that, of, of why it wasn't a big deal for them to just eat the fruit. Now they give anything just to go back 20 seconds ago and make a different choice. You've been here. The road... It was open and clear. The car was brand new. The speed limit said 55, but that's just because the government is into babysitting the public around here. Barney probably isn't even out today. It's a Sunday afternoon and there's no one around. There's no reason why we shouldn't just go faster and faster and faster. 55, 65, 75, 85, 90, 93, 95. Oh man, lights, sirens. Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. Ah, dude. License and registration, please. Oh God, if I could just get those past five minutes back. 
like Mr. Potter said, do I paint an accurate picture or do I exaggerate? And then, and then they try to fix things. Woo! They pull together what they could in an attempt to cover up their nakedness. And their sin, their sin, you see, it had exposed something, not just their naked bodies, but their vulnerability. But they didn't fix anything. Our attempts at covering up sins, they are often more pathetic than the sin itself. The story continues in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I I was afraid because I I was naked and I hid myself. And God says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man says, Well, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord looked to the woman and, and, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and and I ate. So so now we see this blame shifting, right? No one wants to take responsibility for their actions. The man blames the woman, but not just the woman. God, it was the woman you gave me. The woman blames the the snake. You know, that kid might have done his best to get you to cross where you shouldn't have, but he didn't ride your bike for you. You did that. And that car might have been made to go that fast, but no one else was driving it but you, and not to mention that cop was only doing his job. We do this thing where we shift the blame instead of taking responsibility for our own actions. And as I said before, this is a very old story, and it keeps getting repeated over and over and over again. Evidently, this world is going to be full of bright, shiny things that will be very good at instructing us in false narratives. They'll attempt to tell a different story with different stakes, different snakes, and different goals. The woman had seen that the tree was good for eating. She saw that its fruit was to be desired to make one wise. See, she wanted the answers to those questions that we, we oh, I don't, we didn't get the answers. That She wanted the answers. She wanted to be wise, but she wanted the answers before she was ready to receive them. She wanted the answers before God was ready to give them. She ate of it, and then she gave some to her husband, and he ate of it. Their actions were their own, yet no one wants to own any of it. But now come the consequences. They're given to us in the form of three short poems addressed to each of the characters. And and since the snake was the first character mentioned in in this part of the story, God begins with them, begins with him. God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the dust, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's obscure language. Think of it on a larger scale. The serpent represents a creature who will deceive with power. 
We've seen this countless times throughout human history. An individual rises who is the next big thing. Historically speaking, it could be kings like Pharaoh, Caesar, who attempt to create empires of their own making, but we see it today. And they create this situation that leads the masses into barbaric behavior. And the next thing you know, the plot of a unified world becomes lost in the sea of lesser stories with craftier lies. Compromises are made with shady business deals and tax loopholes, and life becomes getting around the truth rather than embracing it. It's too easy to simply say that the serpent represents evil. It's it's evil that comes to us as a friend, a protector, an ally. Still, a promise is made here that is peculiar in its context. The, The serpent is cursed, but we're also told that there's going to be some sort of mysterious discord between his offspring and the woman's offspring. Uh, The word translated offspring simply means seed. So what we see is a hint of what's to come. The serpent is told that he's destined for failure, eating dust all the days of his life, and that the woman's offspring will, will bruise his head even as he strikes their heel. It's, a, it's an image, uh, it's like some sort of a wounded victor who will somehow, someday, show the serpent for what he really is. And then God speaks to the woman and the man, beginning in uh, verse 17. I'm sorry, 16. To the woman, he said, I, I, will, surely put, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, Uh, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here we see the consequences of their actions. For the woman, it's the pain of childbirth and and relational brokenness in her marriage and For the man, his dominion and and labor, which were given to him as good gifts from God, will now take the form of of toil and sweat. By the sweat of his brow, he'll, he'll eat his bread. And the ultimate consequence is that their lives will lead to death. Death has now entered the picture. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is an inevitable part of the story now. But then in closing, we see something we might not expect. The consequences remain, but there's also mercy. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from, and here's a new object in the story, 
lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So death is now part of the story and God doesn't want them to get back into the garden and eat the tree of life, eat from the tree of, of life. Again, this is, this is mysterious language. Um, I think it's important to, to note that God expels them from the garden and places guards at its entrance. A flaming sword, you know, I'd like to see that. That sounds kind of Legend of Zelda-ish. But, you know, but, but he guards the, the entrance to the garden because, because that's what was best for them. They weren't ready. They weren't ready for the tree of life because death had entered the picture. We now see the entrance of a new tree, the tree of life that God wishes to to guard humanity from having access to. The story of Lent is a time that invites Christians on a pilgrimage to the cross. For it is on the cross that we see that wounded victor. Show the powers that be what true power looks like. And John, you know, he, he tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's even better than that, Christian. John also tells us that God so loves the world that he created, that he loves this world that he created so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins in order to, that those who believe will not perish, will not die, but have eternal life. You see, death was indeed a consequence of humanity's rebellion. Death was an inevitable part of the story. Death needed to be defeated. So in a move of cosmic reconciliation, God steps into the story, puts on flesh, goes to the cross himself to show evil for what it really is and defeats death itself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, God didn't want humanity to get back into the garden and eat from the tree of life because he didn't want death to be a part of their story anymore. He desired something better than death for his creation. He desired abundant, eternal, rich life. So that's the beginning of the book of Genesis. Flip to the back of the Bible, to one of the last images that we see in the Bible. We see this image of the new heavens and the new earth. And the writer of Revelation gets this image. This is beginning in verse 22 of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever and ever. Eternal life. That's what is offered in Jesus Christ. Eternal life and a victory over death. That's what God offers. That's what the church's message is. The good news that yes, death Death was a part of the story. Actually, death continues to be an inevitable part of the story. But what God did was defeat death on the cross. He defeated this, this sin and evil. He defeated deception by showing the world what true power looks like. You want to know what it looks like when God has the power? You want to know what it looks like when God's in charge? You want to know what it looks like um, when God's on the throne? Look at the cross. It looks like sacrificial love, and that sacrificial love, that sacrifice ends up being, so it's not blame shifting, right? No, sacrificial love is what it looks like to live an eternal and abundant life. And we do all of this with this, 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 this image in the future, this, this, this future idea that that heaven and earth will one again be, once again be unified. But we don't have to wait to live that out. That's the whole thing. That's the whole point of the gospel is we don't wait until heaven one day in the near future, one glad morning when we fly away. We get to live that now. We get to live like Jesus is on the throne now. We don't have to live like this anymore. We can put down our sin and live into His righteousness, in His faithfulness in His grace, in His peace. And we're not just looking towards each other and talking about how, how we're saved and being the church for, for, for other church people. No, we are the church of Jesus Christ so that we can go out into the world and proclaim that message. That's what it looks like for the local church to be the local church, to proclaim that death and evil and sin have been defeated in Jesus Christ. That's our story. That's our identity. That's the thing that we want to, to focus on um, each week during Lent as we, as we look at these different stories of, of Genesis 3 through 11. And I'm also excited about uh, our friend Ryan Price being with, here, with us on, on Palm Sunday and, and where he's going to talk to us about what life under the one true king looks like. And Anyway, this is more for, for Lent as we go along, but for now, let me pray for us. Father, help us to take these words seriously. Help us to be convicted uh, in the areas where we've sinned, where we've fallen short. Help us to be convicted of the areas where we've missed the mark. Um, not just because they're the naughty things that you tell us not to do, but because these sins, they hurt us, they cause death. When we think about things like sexual immorality and greed and envy and lust, these are not just things that we ought not to do. They are things that 
if we do them. They lead only to death. Let us not leave the path of death. Let us not walk on that path any longer. Let us now walk to the, the path of life. Let us walk towards that tree of life. Let us walk towards your new creation. For your scripture tells us that, that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The, the old is put away. The, 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 there, there's something made new. Father, be with us as, as we acknowledge this, this sin, as we confess our sins. We're, we're so um, grateful that, 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 that Jesus uh, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us be honest about our sins today. Help us lay them out because you know them. You know them more than we do. You know our sins far better than we ever could. Yet you still went to the cross. Yet you still put on flesh and laid down this life and showed us what the defeat of death looked like and showed the powers that be for what they really are. Lord, help us to be the church with this message. Help us to be a church of good news that sin, death, and evil had been, has been defeated. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.